0: Hello and welcome again to The Apologist Bookshelf, Gary Zacharias here. Uh, This is my second batch of 100 uh, podcasts, so I'm going back and taking a second look at some of my books that I really have enjoyed and gotten a lot out of. Today I thought I'd take a look at another one. The old title is Under the Influence, which uh, is kind of funny because it always, to me, suggests something to do with drugs, and that's not the case. It's really telling about how Christianity transformed civilization. The new title, so thank goodness they came up with a better title, pretty generic, but it's a good one, How Christianity Changed the World. So if you find it and you, you want it new, that's what it's gonna say. This, I have an older edition here, Under the Influence. Alvin Schmidt is the author. So last time we took a look at uh, this book and talked about the role of women and how Christianity elevated the role of women and for this one, I wanted to do Chapter 7, and it's called Christianity's Imprint on Education. And I'll tell you why that is especially of interest to me. I'm in the field of education, and there's kind of a consensus out there that Christianity uh, impedes thinking and learning, and that it's for non-thinkers, and that it's backward, and that it's you know out of the Middle Ages, and or as they would call it, the Dark Ages. And if you look at the history, though, of education, and you find out the tremendous role that Christianity had, it's just an unfair picture today, because people don't know history. That was my minor in college. I love history, and people don't know it. And so they have a lot of bad assumptions about that. So let's look at chapter 7. That's uh, Schmidt taking a look at how Christianity had such an impact on education. He starts with Jesus himself and says that, he taught people so that they would teach others. And uh, the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the early Christians, of course, came out of a Jewish tradition that was really big on formal education. But beyond just that, the early followers of Jesus had a, actually a more compelling reason. that They are heeding the Great Commission that Jesus gave them. And after the death of the apostles, that teaching continued, and you find something called a Didache, which came out about 100 AD, and it was an instructional manual for new converts. And Ignatius, in the 2nd century, who was a bishop, he urged that children be taught the Holy Scriptures and a skilled trade. And that was, of course, part of Judaism as well. They would teach their sons a trade skill along with biblical and literary learning. And uh, during this time, again, we're talking about the first few hundred years of Christianity, both men and women were catechized. And this took sometimes two to three years, and often inside a teacher's home. And that led to what they call uh, catechism schools. And they had a strong literary emphasis. So it wasn't just strictly learn who Jesus is. And Justin Martyr, around 150 ADs, often been called the first great scholar of the Christian church. He established schools, one in Ephesus and one in Rome, and pretty soon they popped up other places as well. And they actually became foundations for future Christian leaders like Origen and Athanasius and others. And so, although they, you know, Schmidt admits, of course, that teaching of Christian doctrine was the primary focus, but some of these uh, schools taught mathematics and medicine as well. Now, even though Christians were not the first to engage in formal teaching in school-like settings, but they were the first one to teach both sexes. And so Schmidt comes back to that more than once, because again, notice how that ties in with the idea that Christianity raised the status of women. So it was revolutionary during this time to instruct both men and women. Uh, Many uh, historians say Romans did not formally educate girls in literary skills. So actually, formally educating both sexes was a Christian innovation. that's something nobody knows, nobody has heard of. Even in nunneries, they talk about nunneries. And uh, it's said that they educated their women as well. Girls who received their education in nunneries were usually schooled in liberal arts. So not just Christian vocations, but liberal arts. And some became nuns and became as competent, he says, as the men. The monks, as far as literary matters went. And so, in teaching both sexes, they really, these women and these men, um, the Christians were taking their cue from Jesus, weren't they? He never had a problem teaching women, uh, teaching either publicly or instructing Mary and Martha in their home. He taught men and women alike. So, it's not a case of them wandering away from the faith by teaching women. They were following Jesus Himself. Will Durant. Pretty well known historian is quoted by uh, Schmidt as saying Christianity offered without reservation its education to all individual classes and nations. It was not limited to one people like Judaism, nor to the freedmen of one state like the official cults of Greece and Rome. So it was open, it was universal education. Christians taught individuals from all social classes, all ethnic backgrounds especially, of course, to prepare them for church membership, but there was no ethnic or class bias. In fact, as uh, Schmidt points out, it was the poor and the lower classes who ended up being a majority of the church members. He says what really pushed the idea of universal education occurred with the Protestant Reformation during the 16th century. Uh, The early church catechized individuals from all classes, but it kind of deteriorated, he says, before Luther, and then Luther was concerned with education. So he put out a, uh, a small book, a catechism book, and he noted that people really were becoming super ignorant about Christian teachings, and even the pastors were pretty incompetent to teach. He said a lot of people didn't know the Lord's Prayer. They didn't know the Creed. They didn't know the Ten Commandments. Now he really got on the bishops and said, you're gonna be answering for this someday before Christ. And so more than just writing this catechism, says he, cultivated, uh, he thought cultivating the human mind was essential, and uh, that you they needed to understand the word of Scripture, but they needed to know what the world was like, because that's where you would take the Scripture. So Luther urged a state school system to include vernacular primary schools for both sexes, and in Latin secondary schools and universities. Now he said parents that didn't teach their kids were shameful and despicable, So, yeah, leave it to Luther not to spare words in this case. And uh, one historian says Luther wanted a system of education as free and unrestricted as the gospel that he preached and indifferent to distinctions of sex or social class. So, for Luther, schools were to train and prepare for people more than just clergy. He wanted it for the general population, and John Calvin agreed Another leader in the Protestant Reformation, he also advocated universal education. So, as Schmidt points out, you can see because of Luther and Calvin, it shows the desire to educate everybody is not due to the modern secular world. It comes from a logical outgrowth of the idea that God is no respecter of persons and that every individual is responsible for his or her own salvation. So, because that puts responsibility and people, they better be able to read and think and and act on these things. So it led to the conclusion everybody had to be educated. And uh, Luther apparently also came up with the idea of tax-supported public schools. So I think that's interesting instead of just saying, well, we just take care of it inside a cathedral or inside a church. He said, look, he said, if the civil authorities are spending money on the military and bridges and roads, why couldn't they spend money to educate the youth? And so he believed the country had to have public schools supported by public uh, using uh, the public treasury and so the organization organization of these schools was really a responsibility that came out of Luther and his efforts so as uh, Schmidt points out, well it may be wise or may not be wise to have public tax supported schools, but especially today where you know sometimes Christian values don't get uh, much value. <laughs> There, he said, it really had the roots in thinking of these Christian reformers. What about compulsory education? Guess who? Luther again. He thought education was so valuable for all children that he told civic authorities they should compel children to go to school. Now, again, some people may not like that idea, but I'm just suggesting, I think Schmidt's pointing out that this is not coming out of modern secular thought. This all came out of way earlier from Christian thinkers. So pretty soon the idea uh, that every child should attend school is just a norm. It's just absolutely normal. And people can't imagine that kids wouldn't attend some kind of school. But most people today don't know that this was first advocated by Luther because he saw Jesus was the center of everything. Well, what else happened? Well, a man who was a Lutheran layman came up with the idea of graded education, you know, to have levels, elementary and secondary and higher So behind that idea of the system was an educator who was shaped by his love of Jesus. Then there's kindergarten. Guess who? It's Christian again, the man who was the son of a Lutheran pastor. He was a devout Christian whose beliefs convinced him that the world of man and nature were connected by God. And so we should teach young kids this. And uh, so today, virtually all countries have some sort of kindergarten schools, and it came about because of a Christian. Then we get specified education, like the deaf. Okay, Uh, it was people who were Christians. Gallaudet, who you think of especially here in the United States, he opened the first school, and uh, gives you an idea of his outlook. He once said to a young deaf girl when he was going to Europe to learn more about helping the deaf, he said to her, talking about coming back to the U.S., he said, I hope when I come back to teach you much about the Bible and about God, and Christ. So he was a definite Christian. So it, it really originated, deaf education, and he mentioned some other people here, it originated as a product of Christian motivation. Isn't that interesting? How about education for the blind? Well, Schmidt points out human life in the Greco Roman world was cheap. I mean, people were expendable, and especially if kids had some kind of physical defect like blindness, the kids would often be taken out and just abandoned. Uh, In Greece, blind babies were often cast into the sea. But what about blind education because of Christianity? Well, he gives one example. We've all heard of Braille. Braille, that's uh, Louis Braille. He was a dedicated Christian. Now, he lost his own sight by puncturing his eye accidentally, and it affected the other eye, and he lost its sight as well. Anyway, long story, but it says when he lay on his deathbed, Braille said this, I'm convinced that my mission is finished on earth. I tasted yesterday the supreme delight. God descended to brighten my eyes with the splendor of eternal hope. So here we go again, another huge advance in education for the blind, and is prompted by the love of Jesus. So people can use their fingers if they're blind to read. How about Sunday schools? Of course, that was started by a Christian. He thought but he wasn't just thinking, i got to make better Christians out of them. He realized poor kids who worked six days a week weren't really learning anything. They weren't getting any education. And he thought he'd help the children of the poor by teaching them on Sundays. And he did. He, he wanted to teach them the Bible, obviously. But then he discovered they couldn't read. So to teach them the Bible, he'd teach them the skill of reading. His name is Robert Rakes of Scotland. And so he said, of course, it grew rapidly. And uh, it said it's all over the place now. And then Christians are the ones who started um, universities. Of course, the Greeks and Romans uh, loved education. And some people will say, well, they started the universities, but they did not develop, even the brilliant ones, they never developed any permanent institutions. They had no libraries, no guild of scholars or students. They certified nobody. They didn't test theories. They didn't engage in research. In fact, they didn't like the inductive method at all it says, the best evidence is that universities grew out of Christian, let's fill in the blank, Christian monasteries. Now, remember, I mentioned at the beginning here, a lot of people say, oh, monasteries, dark ages, Christians sitting around mumbling prayers to themselves. Not true. Now, I'm going to skip over a lot of this, but we can trace a lot of the rise of modern universities to monasteries. It says uh, that from their monastic roots, and throughout the 19th century, all universities were founded as Christian institutions, as Christian institutions. And we know that. I mean, we look at places like Harvard here in the U.S., uh, William & Mary, Yale, Northwestern, Princeton, and he just goes down the list and shows that most of colleges universities that we know today here in the U.S., they began as Christian schools. And so... It says, of course, a lot of them, unfortunately, have walked away from the original charters, but it said most of them today would not be in existence if it hadn't been for their Christian forebears. So his conclusion, I think it's a good conclusion, he just rattles off all these things, the catechism schools, the cathedral schools, episcopal schools, monasteries, medieval universities, schools for the blind and deaf, Sunday schools, modern grade schools, secondary schools, modern colleges, universities, universal education, they all have one thing in common, they're the products of Christianity. He quotes another uh, scholar who says, Every school you see, public or private, religious or secular, is a visible reminder of the religion of Jesus Christ. So is every college and university. He ends his chapter saying, You know, it's kind of an irony that uh, individuals in Western society spend so much time in these different kinds of schools and colleges, but they don't learn much about the contributions that Christianity made. And and I, I agree with that. It's it's a real shame. We just are so ignorant of our own Christian past. So I, I would say this is a, a powerful book so that you can see that Christianity is has produced so many wonderful things for the world today. We should not be ashamed of it. We should be impressed and let others know about it. So again, the book used to be called Under the Influence. Alvin Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T, the author. Today it's called How Christianity Changed the World. Highly recommend this book. I don't know if I mentioned some of the chapters that he covers, but how Christianity helped in the area of labor and economics, and science, and liberty, and justice, and ending slavery, and art, and architecture, and music, and literature, and how it elevated sexual morality, and freedom, and dignity. I mean, it just goes on and on. We have no reason to be ashamed or to hide what Christianity did. It made the modern world. It made the good that's come about. So a really good book that you might enjoy. All right, well, hope to talk to you again soon.